0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Kino, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 15th, 2022. A couple of interesting pieces of news on the uh, Latino front. Uh, Change of pace today. Uh, the elections yesterday suggested that there are shifting fortunes shifting sands in the nature of how the different communities of America vote um, and the Republicans flipped a democratic held uh, house seat in Texas suggesting to some at least uh, that the Republican party surprise surprise at least to some is making inroads with, Hispanic voters. Meanwhile, on the international front, Summit of America's happened. It wasn't, perhaps, uh, Joe Biden's uh, greatest moment. Um, Some people suggested that he made the best of a a lousy hand. Others suggest that it reflects the domestic dysfunctionality at home, both probably on the left and the right, in terms of America's decline. Um, as a power, as perhaps the leading power in America. One man who spent a lifetime looking both at uh, Latinos within America and the whole uh, relationship, complicated relationship between Latin America and the United States is my guest today. Um, Many of you will be familiar with him. He's a a legendary journalist in his own right. Uh, And he's also the author of a, of a classic, I think we can call it. It's rare that we use this term, but I think in terms of this book, Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America, uh, its second revised edition is just out. The first one was uh, in 2011. And Juan Gonzalez is joining us from New Brunswick in New Jersey. He's also a professor at um, Rutgers University. Juan, uh, welcome, it's a real honor to talk to you. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. How does it feel to be an authority on Latinos? Can you can you speak for everybody, Juan, or is that a rather absurd notion? Well,
1: given the size and diversity of the community, uh, I, I don't think anyone can speak for the Latino community, but I think that uh, given the fact that I've spent now uh, over 70 years uh, living the Latino experience here uh, in the United States uh, uh, and have had the opportunity to interview and uh, meet many of the leaders of the community, as well as uh, travel to most of the communities, not only in the United States, but also uh, from the countries from which folks came. I think I've got a pretty good idea of what some of the bigger, the biggest uh, issues and the historical trends uh, within the Latinx community of the United States is.
0: Juan, you use the term Latinx, I wanna to get to that. I know you're ambivalent about that term. You also talk about the Latino experience what exactly does that mean? Can one generalize?
1: Well, the reality is that uh, there have been so many different migrant uh, waves from different countries in Latin America that when initially, uh, as uh, the group started to come, whether it was Mexicans or Puerto Ricans or Cubans or Dominicans, most people sort of reflected more their national or ethnic identification. But the reality is that the, the the migration has been so large and so consistent now for the last 60 years. And the original migrants have had children and grandchildren and they've intermarried among each other as well as with African-Americans and white Americans. But the children and the grandchildren of those original migrants are really a new thing. They are the Latino in America uh, because if, uh, if Salvadorans and, and Mexicans marry in L.A., their children are no longer just Salvadoran or Mexican. They're more uh, Americans, Latinos now. So I think that there is and there has been developing a, a, a new group, which is the Latino in America, uh, which I try to explain the, the sources of the migration, but then the transformation of the, uh, of the groups within the country itself.
0: I want to talk about what's changed after the, uh, over the last decade since you, you wrote your original uh, revised edition. Um, but let's talk about the, the premise in the book. The book is called Harvest of Empire, um, a history uh, of Latin, uh, sorry, uh, a history uh, of Latinos in America. I wonder, and of course, Harvest of Empire is the controversial title. Given the complexity and all the paradoxes um, uh, defining the Latino experience in America, I wonder whether it would be fair to say that the heart of it is on the one hand, America was a republic founded against colonialization, founded against empire, particularly, obviously, the European, uh, the British model. On the other hand, of course, and as you outline in the book, America itself has become an empire. So it's a very hard circle to square or a square to circle. Do you think that this is at the heart of the the, the, the paradoxical history of Latinos in America?
1: Well, precisely. That's why I, I guess the main theme of the book is encapsulated in the in the title Harvest of Empire. Uh, it's, it's, it's been my thesis now and, I've, and uh, I think in the over 20 years now that the book has been out, it has not been disproved at all is that you cannot really understand the presence of so many Latinos in the United States. And today there are over 62 million uh, people of Latin American descent in the United States, unless you understand the role of the United States in Latin America, that the Latinos are really the unintended harvest of an empire that the united states built in the 19th and early 20th century because latin america was really the incubator of overseas multinational corporations of us intervention in countries and to, and also that we're not alone in this you know the uh, france doesn't know what to do about all the tunisians and the moroccans and algerians that that have come to to france over the last 50 60 years england is grappling with how to uh, deal with increasing numbers of Pakistanis and Indians and Jamaicans. Germany is is uh, is trying to understand how to deal with the changing Germany with so many Turks and Middle East uh, uh, migrants coming to the countries. And if you look at it, the migrants come precisely from the countries that used to be their colonial masters. The reason there are so many Algerians, Moroccans and Tunisians uh, in France is because those were the colonies of France. Uh, The same with the Indians and the Pakistanis and Jamaicans in England and and the Turks uh, in uh, in Germany. And for the United States, the heart of its original colonial empire, especially after the Spanish American war, was Latin America Uh, and the the Western colonizers expected only to take resources out of those countries. They never expected the people to come. But what happened was after World War II, they impressed, or during World War II, they impressed their colonial subjects to fight in the war. My father and his two brothers were drafted out of Puerto Rico to fight in the 65th Infantry in all Puerto Rican regiment in World War II. And they traveled through North Africa, up the boot of Italy, into Germany, fighting for the United States, they didn't even speak the English language. It was an all-Spanish-speaking regiment. And the French did the same thing with their colonial subjects, the British with their colonial subjects, And when these people came back from war, fighting fascism, fighting Nazism, they insisted on the same kinds of rights uh, that the the West was upholding. And so you had, of course, the independence movements in Africa, and you had... uh, uh, the, the civil rights movement of African-Americans and Latinos in the United States demanding equality and just treatment. So that's the unintended harvest of the empire. The colonial powers never expected that people would come. They only expected that the wealth and the resources of those uh, of those uh, countries uh, would benefit them.
0: One another uh, one another of the and I love this term unintended. Harvests, Um was mythology. We've done lots of shows about, for example, the Texas Creation myth. We did one with Brian Burrow on the real story of the Alamo. America's never been very honest, has it? American historians, American storytellers, for the most part, particularly white male storytellers, they've never been very honest about the role of Latinos and the uh, the, the, the relationship with Mexico and Latin America in American history. Is that fair? Well,
1: absolutely. Uh, When you look at the development of U.S. history, and you understand that probably the biggest addition of territory to what is now the United States came out of the U.S.-Mexican War in between 1846 and 1848. Uh, The result of that war was that the United States acquired half of Mexico uh and uh, which are now which is now called california nevada arizona new mexico uh the rest of texas that they that had not been, already been acquired after the secession war of 1836 of the of, of the, the texas uh, republic uh and uh, uh parts of colorado and that there were thousands and thousands of mexicans living on that land and of course the if you are a Mexican from South Texas or Northern New Mexico uh, and, uh, or Southern Colorado, you've always said, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Uh, they were made US citizens while still being on the land that they had occupied and their families had occupied for long before uh, the United States uh, was established. So I think that that's part of the, the Latino legacy. And it's not just the migrants who have come recently, it's that there is a long history of Latino presence in America, Uh, and uh, and of course, the Puerto Ricans. Uh, There were a million Puerto Ricans living on the island of Puerto Rico when the United States acquired it uh, uh, after the Spanish-American War. Those Puerto Ricans never went anywhere. Uh, They stayed on their island in their country. They just became uh, a territory of the United States and eventually were granted citizenship uh, by Congress uh, so that uh, those folks are not migrants. They're part of the American history, and for some reason, we we constantly want to ignore that history. And of course, the Texas Republic and the Battle of the Alamo is sort of the iconic uh, example uh, because all of the Texans were actually Mexican citizens <laughs> when they revolted uh, uh, against, uh, uh, against the Mexican central government. They'd already pledged allegiance uh, to Mexico uh, when they launched uh, their revolt. And of course, a big part of that revolt was the expansion of slavery.
0: Right. You've talked about slavery. You've talked about the African-American experience in parallel with the Latino experience. I mean, obviously, the the African-American experience and slavery was rooted in a very overt and profoundly evil racism. Do you see the history of Latinos also in America, particularly in 19th century America, in terms of racism too? Did white Americans think of Latinos as being slightly lighter skinned version of African-Americans?
1: Well, yes, the the viewpoint of most of the settlers who came West uh, especially, was that the Mexican population was, as far as they sort, a mongrel population. It was largely uh, Indian mixed with Spaniards and mixed with uh, Africans, and so it was seen as a mongrel race. And much of the attitudes toward the Mexicans were rooted not just in national divi- differences or language divisions, but in this sense that uh, uh, that the Mexicans were not really white as far as uh, Anglo Americans were concerned, and uh, so you've seen uh, a lot of the same treatment in Texas. There were segregated schools, Mexican schools, and 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 white schools. Uh, there were lynchings. Uh, it's been documented over five hundred uh, uh, Latinos were lynched uh, in the in the late nineteenth century, uh, mostly in Texas, some in California, and some in Arizona. And in fact, the Texas Rangers arose particularly, especially to control and repress uh, the Mexicans who were on the land that was the U.S. at the time. Uh, so uh, there was a long time, uh, a many, many decades of racist treatment of the Latino population, especially the Mexican uh, uh, population.
0: One, we've done a number of shows about the white treatment of indigenous peoples of North America, the peoples who were here before the Europeans shown up. One interesting show recently by a historian who actually just won the Pulitzer Prize suggested that it was the Europeans who were the savages and the indigenous peoples who were more civilized in cultural and political terms. We got it wrong. Um, How do you tell the story of of the indigenous peoples in the context of Latinos, particularly given that some of the Latinos who came here in the first place were themselves colonialists who uh, weren't exactly kind to the indigenous people. So what's your narrative on this?
1: Yes, well, in the book, I go extensively into the impact of the indigenous populations on both English colonialism in the American colonies, as well as in the, uh, in the Spanish and uh, Portuguese colonies. And I think the key thing to understand is that um, the indigenous populations... Uh, in Latin America and South America were much greater in size uh, than was the indigenous population of uh, North America. There were a prop of about 13 million indigenous peoples north of the Rio Grande, whereas you had uh, uh, as many as uh, uh, 30, 40 million uh, in Central Mexico and, and millions more in uh, in Peru and in Central America. Until they so, were w- w-
0: wiped out to some extent by the Spaniards. Yeah.
1: Well, there were a, a significant portion were wiped out, but the Spaniards, in in essence, uh, erected their colonial system as a superstructure over the existing native societies. Uh, and in fact, uh, you'll see that if you study the history of Cortes and the other conquistadors, they often made alliances with different groups of native peoples to fight other native peoples. And so in essence, Uh, The the Spanish uh, utilized the native peoples as a labor force and accorded them certain local uh, rights to run their societies. The English colonists and the Americans subsequently constantly shunted the Indians westward. Uh, And they never tried to uh, integrate their societies in any way with the native peoples. And so what ended up happening is you did have much more racial mixing that occurred among in in the uh, uh, in the Spanish uh, colonies and then in the independent countries. Uh, And and of course, in Latin America, they freed their slaves much sooner. Uh, Bolivar, Simon Bolivar, the great liberator, that was one of his main uh, 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 the main issues that he raised in in building his army against the Spaniards, was ab- abolishing slavery. Uh, and so uh, the, to that degree, the, the culture and society of Latin America was much more racially mixed. And so for instance, when, the Span- when some Spaniards founded the city of Los Angeles uh, in, uh, uh, in the 1700s, a large group of the colonizers were actually mixed race uh, native uh native peoples there were african peoples as well as spaniards uh, in the founding group of los angeles uh and so i think that's a a difference between the way that the uh, the native populations were dealt with uh, and of course uh, whether it was the the aztecs or the mayas or the pueblo indians uh in um uh in uh, arizona and and new mexico uh or the Incas, these were much more developed societies. Uh, The the closest that you'd have in North America that the the American colonists dealt with uh, um, were the Iroquois. And the Iroquois, of course, did have a big impact uh, on notions of political development in American society, uh, but uh, certainly not at the level that the native peoples did uh, in uh, the Spanish-speaking world.
0: This is an incredibly rich conversation. It is indeed a harvest of a conversation with Juan Gonzalez, the author of the classic Harvest of Empire. We're out with a second revised edition, the first one since uh, 2011. We could spend hours, one, talking about 18th, 19th century colonial histories of one kind or another, but let's fast forward. Let's talk about what's changed in the 11 years since your first revised edition came out of the book. Um, Why the need for a a new edition? What's happened in the world of American Latinos or U.S. Latinos that makes it necessary for a, a revised edition?
1: Well, there's so much that's happened. It's it's. Uh, uh, I I think I added about 125 pages of new material to this uh, to this book, uh, and just to try to update uh, the uh, the data, the trends, and uh, and uh, some of the main uh, developments in the Latino community. I think obviously the first one is the sheer size of the community that uh, we're talking now. As I said, about 62 million Latinos,
0: 18 percent of the population. But uh, that, those, sorry to interrupt, uh, one of those 62 million, how many think of themselves as Latino? I'd say
1: most think of themselves uh, either as from identify from their particular nationality, whether it's Salvadoran, Guatemalan, Dominican, uh, and uh, or, or Puerto Rican, uh, and uh, because really the 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 term Latino is still developing, just as I as you mentioned, Latinx. That's an even more advanced term that is still developing. But really, I think that most people do refer them to, to themselves as Hispanic or Latino when asked, especially vis-à-vis the Anglo or the African American world, uh, that they they will uh, certainly identify as Latino. Okay, and so I- we have
0: a growth, um, whether you call them Latinos or Latinx, mm-hmm. from. From how many? How how many were were, there in
1: 2011? Well, at the 2010 census, there were about 50 million. Now there are 62 million.
0: More than 20, 20, 24, 25 percent. It's a huge rise.
1: Right. But then uh, I always tell people, don't just look at the total population. Look at the young people. Today, 54 percent of all the public school children in California are Latino. 52 percent of the public school children of texas are latino 45 percent of the public school enrollments in arizona are latino you go to georgia where latinos never used to be in georgia in any uh, in any significant numbers today not only is about 10 percent of the entire state latino but but 16 of its public schools latinos are so much younger that the real growth in terms of influence is when these young people today that are in the sixth, seventh, eighth grade or in high school get to be adults. That's when you're really going to see in another 10 years the enormous growth that has occurred uh, because the rest of the US population is much older. It's not; uh, They're not having as many babies. And so we're looking not only at what is here today, but what's going to be here in 10 years, in 20 years. Uh, and that—that that I think is what's significant. That the Latino. It's Latinos very are interesting. We, we had a of um,
0: very interesting conversations recently on the show with young uh, Latino writers. One with Monica Guzman. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She has a new book out. I never thought of it that way. About having fearlessly curious conversations. She writes about how she and her parents. Her parents were from Mexico didn't agree on politics, but they learned to talk to one another. So Monica is, is quite literally a bridge builder. She's one of the more impressive young Americans I've come across. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. And also with a, um, a young writer, Julissa Arce, um, who, who has a new book out, uh, You Sound Like a White Girl, The, re- the Case for Rejecting Assimilation. What uh, are you seeing amongst these young Latinos that you write about and you describe, um, are you seeing... A rethinking of the idea of assimilation, as uh, Julissa Arce argues.
1: Well, I think uh, assimilation is a two-way street. You have to want to be assimilated, and, you, and the society wants to assimilate you. Uh, and I think that uh, there are problems on both sides. And uh, uh, you know, I, I had a good friend who was a high school teacher, a Dominican uh, teacher, who uh, who taught Spanish in uh, in high school. And she was always frustrated that the Latino kids were the children who most resisted taking Spanish as a foreign language because they had internalized their own sense lack of worth of that the society viewed them that they used to say, "I don't want to learn Spanish, I'm an American." Right? Uh, so there is that aspect of the of the of, of Latino youth who not only feel rejected or looked down upon by the rest of society but who want to to um to escape from their own uh their own family and uh and ethnic identity uh and rather than think hey if i know some words in spanish i take this course in high school i'll do much better than some of the other kids Uh, but no they don't want to learn spanish because that would identify them more as as hispanic however there are many young people who as they understand the enormous sacrifices that their parents made to come to this country, uh, to build a life for themselves and who see how little appreciated those sacrifices are, become more proud of their heritage and more determined to be able to make make a way in America for other Latinos. And you see that in the dreamers, you see that in, uh, in many of the young activists that are now taking part in, Climate change uh, move in the climate change movement and the women's movement and 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 other social movements. So uh, you find both both things occurring on the issue of assimilation.
0: And where do you stand, Juan? I'm curious. Um, I did a show with Ibu Patel. We need to build field notes for a diverse democracy. He talks about the need for diversity in American democracy. He's not alone. Do you think that Latinos? Given the rather dire state of American democracy, the divisions, the racial divisions, the ill feeling, the suspicion, can Latinos play a more prominent role in rebuilding American democracy in a, in a diverse 21st century? Do young people like Monica Guzman and Julissa say do they need to step forward to be the actual builders of this new world?
1: I think that um, many are doing that already, and I think that that that's why I, I wrote the book uh, originally. I wrote my the book originally to try to reach young uh, young Latinos because I knew the population was going to continue to grow. I mean, I wanted other readers as well. But I wanted someone to uh, something to explain to these young people who read they get nothing in their in their public school education about their own communities. Uh, you know, look at me. I was born in Puerto Rico, but I've lived in this country, as I said, for over 70 years. Uh, I never learned anything about Puerto Rico and its role uh, in American society. Uh, in all the years I was in in public schools, in college afterwards, uh, and I had to rediscover that history myself. And I think that um, that that's what I was trying to do, not only for the Puerto Ricans, but for the Salvadorans and the Guatemalans and the Dominicans and the Colombians uh, and all of these folks who really are here, but they don't know how they got here or or what their parents went through uh, uh, to bring them here. And so uh, that was my main goal, to, tr- to basically rescue the history that's been buried uh, of this uh, this unintended harvest of the empire.
0: And obviously, over the last 10 years, um, the issue of immigration from Central America has become increasingly central. We did a show with Levi Vonk, border hacker on the incredibly inhuman conditions uh, in Central America in terms of trying to get into America. Many books have been written about this. I assume this is one of the most profound changes, one over the last 11 years in terms of your introduction uh history of Latinos in America now is increasingly defined by the ongoing crisis of immigration. Yes, and I uh, in
1: my in the first edition of the book, i I, I started the book talking about the efforts of uh, the Chinese emperors to build the Great Wall of China. It took them hundreds of years uh, to build. Uh, supposedly to keep out the Mongol hordes. Uh, and uh, and I've always referred to the Great Wall of China as the, the greatest testament to human insecurity uh, that exists in the world. Because at that time, in the 90s, uh, the US was beginning to build a little wall along the San Diego border. And of course, that wall is really, to me, the various attempts over the last 20 years to to build that wall uh, is one of the most bizarre political attempts in history. How in the world, when we are talking about a globalized economy, tearing down barriers uh, for the flow of capital and money and investment from one country to another, are we trying to build a wall uh, a 2,000-mile wall with our closest neighbor, uh, the largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. Mexico has 100 and almost 130 million people. It's the largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. Half of Mexico was taken by the United States, and now we are trying to build a wall with one of our biggest trading partners. Uh, do you know that today there are as many Automobile workers in Mexico, 685,000, as there are in the United States. And they're all working for U.S. companies. <laughs> so the U.S. companies decided to go down there precisely because we're one economy. And yeah. yet we are trying to build a wall. And it's bizarre that we're even thinking of doing that or continuing to attempt to do that.
0: Well, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, New York University historian uh, Ada Ferrer, her book. Cuba and american history oh yeah sure uh just won the uh, pulitzer prize she was on the show and she talks about the the way in which cuban and american history are so entangled that they're actually impossible to separate i wonder if the same is true for the broader history of the united states and latin america we began this show talking about the summit of america an american decline domestic dysfunctionality and less and less American influence and understanding in Central and Latin America. What did the writing of the book and your research tell us about how America, the future of the United States in the 21st century might be shaped or reshaped by things that happen in Central and Latin America?
1: Well, there's no doubt that there is a uh, uh, there's a enormous uh, enormous impact for what happens below the border, and and I think that, uh, Ada who I know well, uh, it's a marvelous book, and
0: she's a wonderful speaker actually.
1: Yes, and uh, and she deals with the the historical ties between Cuba and the United States. People don't realize there were many, many Americans who went to Cuba in the 19th and early 20th century to make make their fortunes. Uh, The same thing is true of Mexico. For instance, John Mason Hart, the great historian, noted at one point that by 1910, just before the Mexican Revolution, 40,000 Americans had moved to Mexico. They had migrated to Mexico for business. Uh, 15,000 of them owned uh, land in Mexico to the point that by 1910 a third of the entire land mass of Mexico was owned by Americans. And uh, and there were at least 160 individuals and companies that each owned over 100,000 acres. The United States controlled 75 uh, percent of the railway system, uh, the the mining, the mining system, the oil industry. Uh, there was enormous, uh, in not only investment but migration of Americans uh, to uh, to Mexico. Uh, of course, the, even the most uh, and even more bizarre example was Nicaragua. The famous uh, 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 filibuster William Walker. William Walker in 1855 overthrew the government of Nicaragua, took over the country, reinstituted slavery, and thousands of Americans moved to Nicaragua in the 1850s to live under the president, the American president of Nicaragua.
0: Yeah, and uh, Ada, in her book, talks about one vice president uh, in the middle of the 19th century who was actually uh, inaugurated in Cuba itself.
1: (laughs) And and of course, then you have uh, the Panama Canal. I mean, uh, you know, Teddy Roosevelt wanted to build that canal across the Isthmus of Panama, but Panama didn't exist as a country then. It was a province of Colombia. It was part of the Colombian nation, but the Colombian government would not give Teddy Roosevelt uh, the right to have a sovereign territory right through the middle of its own country. So what did Roosevelt do? He backed an insurgency uh, that uh, that was fomented in New York City. And then as soon as the insurgents declared independence, he sent the U.S. Navy down there to protect them. And the next day, as soon as the new Republic of Panama was established, the first thing they did was sign the treaty to build the canal.
0: So So so, so the Americans have run the show or had run the show for a couple of hundred years in Latin America. In fact, uh, when I was talking to Ada, we talked about uh, how the godfather, that most American of all, Movies. uh, Some of the key moments in Godfather Two took place in Cuba, which was a sort of an extension of the American Empire. But things have changed now. Yes, Chinese are investing massively in um, in Latin America. The Hill reports that in the Cold War with China, Latin America is neutral. You write in some detail about Chinese investment in Latin America. How is that going to change not just Latin America, but the Latino experience? in america itself and 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 how uh america deals with latin america we're on the verge of a new cold war well
1: no i think what's happening is we're on the we're in a situation now where latin america is much more independent i think that's what the summit of the americas uh, 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 last week showed that uh it used to be that whatever the united states said happened uh and uh now you have a situation where not only are there many social movements of uh, in various countries in Latin America where indigenous people and marginalized people are now actually mobilized and electing people to office and, and being active in the political life of the country. So there's a social movement from the bottom. But at the same time, at the top in terms of investment and financing, suddenly it's no longer the America, the uh, the U.S. backyard, uh, because now China, as an independent force uh, in world affairs, uh, has been investing heavily uh, in uh, massive, massive in dams, in ports, in many of the the countries, and railway systems, and the loans are usually with far less interest rates than the western loans than the western loans and they come with fewer conditions uh, although of course china wants resources so it's getting them uh, uh, but china is uh, Acting with a velvet glove instead of with a hammer, and I, the Latin Americans realize that. And now they say, "Oh, we got an option. We don't have to do what the United States says, because we have someone else who can bankroll our project. We have someone else who will who will assist us in in building our infrastructure. And so I think that creates enormous, uh, free uh, much more freedom for the Latin Americans to stand up uh, on various issues uh, and tell the United States no." Uh, this is our, this is hemisphere belongs to all of us. Let's work together in a cooperative way uh, to build it.
0: What about the future of Latin American democracy and American democracy? Biden, of course, rather embarrassingly met with Bolsonaro at the Summit of Americas. I had, um, I'm sure you know uh, Moises Naim, a very distinguished writer, former economics minister for Venezuela, has a new book out, The Revenge of Power. Uh, much of his ideas of the new authoritarianism are borrowed from Chavez and Maduro. Democracy isn't necessarily in a, in any healthier state in Latin America as it is in America, in the United States. Is it, Juan? Uh,
1: well, we definitely have uh, a, a, a deepening problem that uh, one person, uh, one vote, depends on a population being able to get... Uh, accurate information and being able to understand what their interests are. Uh, and the reality is that we're in a world right now where uh, being able to understand what is true and real is much more difficult than it was in the past. Uh, and uh, therefore it's much easier as Bolsonaro learned uh, to use social media in his campaigns uh, uh, to uh to uh, hoodwink large numbers of the Brazilian people, uh, that uh, increasingly uh, it's a lot harder for uh, democracy and social justice to function in tandem. Uh, And I think that uh, we are seeing um, uh, the growth of a new kind of uh, uh, authoritarianism, where people still have the legal right to vote. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the ability of others to control the information that they receive uh, and their understanding what's real and what's not uh, has been uh, greatly diminished. Uh, and I don't know how we're going to resolve this because um, you don't want to increasingly allow uh, uh, surveillance and repression of thought on, uh, in, on the Internet. Uh, because that can lead to even greater problems. But on the other hand, you want to be able to somehow or other prevent massive disinformation uh, from uh, grabbing uh, people's minds. And uh, and it's, uh, it is ex- an extremely difficult uh, problem to solve.
0: Well, I think we'll learn more about how that problem was or wasn't solved in the third revised edition one. I, I hear that's expected in about 2030. For the meantime, the, the second revised edition of Juan González's classic, Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America, is, is just that. It's an essential read for all Americans, not just Latinos. Congratulations, Juan. Marvellous achievement. The most important thinker and writer in this field. Uh, what else have you been reading in addition to Harvest of America? Uh, sorry, not Harvest, Harvest of Empire, Juan. What, what, what are the other books on your reading list these days? Well,
1: uh, one book that I, I just finished—it it actually came out a few years ago. Um, it's called the "Dreams of Freedom," uh, uh, a Ricardo Flores Magón reader. Uh, a lot, most people don't know Ricardo Flores Magón, but he was—he's considered one of the heroes of Mexico, uh, uh, of the Mexican Revolution, one of the precursors to Zapata and to Pancho Villa and the other better known leaders of the Mexican Revolution. But Ricardo Flores Magon was a journalist and an anarchist who spent a lot of time in the United States because he was constantly being hunted uh, by uh by the dictator Porfirio Diaz and eventually, and was uh, arrested several times by the federal government for seditious conspiracy uh and ended up dying in Leavenworth prison here in the United States and yet in Mexico he is regarded as one of the founding fathers of the Mexican revolution and uh and uh, looked up to but here he was just considered a radical crazy. Uh, and uh, so this this reader really goes into his writings and it's fascinating to see how Ricardo Flores Madon was part of the worldwide anarchist movement with Emma Goldman, with, with other famous uh, 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 American anarchists, and, uh, and was really part of a, a worldwide movement for, for freedom that lit the spark that became the Mexican Revolution of 1910.